thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran. Hello and welcome to the Fighter Pilot Podcast. I am the founder and usual host, Vincent Aiello. As you've heard on the past couple episodes of this show, December is Bomber Month because during the season of giving, there's nothing quite like a big old bomber. And while the format is the same as past Bomber Months, you might recognize a new voice. My usual co-host, Bo, will make an appearance later in the month to discuss the B-24 Liberator. But the first two episodes are hosted by former Bomber Month guest, Ken Katz. You remember Primetime. He's the former U.S. Air Force flight engineer who joined us for the B-52 Stratofortress episode way back in 2019, our first Bomber Month. Well, Ken is back, and he's hosting a couple shows on the FB-111A and Flight Test as it applies to bombers, namely the B-52 and the B-1. I think you'll really enjoy his episodes. So enjoy Bomber Month, happy holidays, and I'll be back later in the month. Take it away, Primetime. Friendly 00558, additional group 00563 running north. Target now 17646, tracking uh, 260. Forget Shark Week. Here on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, it's Bomber Month. On the 4th, 14th, and 24th of December, we'll feature a different bomber topic from the Cold War era General Dynamics FB 111 to the consolidated. B-24 Liberator, and strategic bomber flight tests. Never mind the announcements. Listener questions can wait. Let's get straight to it with your host, former U.S. Air Force flight test engineer, Ken Katz. During the Cold War, the Strategic Air Command's FB-111A supersonic swing-wing bomber stood nuclear alert for two decades. Fighter Pilot Podcast listeners may remember that the F-111 was discussed in episode 111. The FB-111A that we'll discuss today was the strategic bomber version of the F-111, with a different mission, some differences in the airframe engine and systems, and different weapons. Today on the Fighter Pilot Podcast, we'll discuss the FB-111A with retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Bill Moran. Welcome, Colonel Moran. Thanks, Ken. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Let's talk a little bit first about your background. How'd you uh, get into the Air Force, and how'd you get to the FB-111, and what'd you do after? Well, I got into the Air Force because I had a low draft number back in the uh, late 1960s, early 1970s when I was in college. I was drafted in uh, 72, but I had one more semester to go, so I got uh, an extension. And during that time, the Air Force recruiter called me up and said, how would you like to be an Air Force pilot? And I said, how soon can we talk? It was kind of interesting that the day the Air Force uh, accepted me to pilot training, Friday after Thanksgiving, the Navy called me up where I had tested also and said they had lowered their standards and they would accept me to Navy navigator flight training. I said, well, I think I'll take the Air Force pilot training. So one week after college, complete University of Rhode Island, I was at officer's training school, finished up there, went off to Vance Air Force Base in Enid, Oklahoma for pilot training. And pilot training was really, for me, 
as an individual that had never flown in his life, quite interesting. I was part of the last class to do Cessna 172 T-41s at the Vance Air Force Base and did that out at Woodring Airport. That went pretty well and went over to the T-37. And of course, my first contact check, the evaluator said, we've never seen a passing score so low. So it's <laughs> okay, that's good. It was passing, right? And then um, did the T-37 instrument check and got a 95 there. And my instructor just scratched his head. So his uh, recommendations to me were slow corrections, slow your corrections down. And I've lived that my entire flying career. Came up for uh, 38 and loved the 38. How could they give us this white rocket to go fly solo and do these loops at 10,000 feet and 500 knots? It was such a thrill pulling up, tilting the head back, looking for the section lines there in Oklahoma and being lined up and say, oh, I got this one. Not many fighters came down to our class drop. I think there were like four fighters for 30 pilots. And I always wanted the FB-111, but they never came down from SAC. They took more experienced people except for my class. We got an FB-111 down, but I hadn't put in for it. But this guy, Steve, had put in for it. So he got it. Steve had Army Helicopter Vietnam flight experience. So he went off to the FB-111 school at Plattsburgh, did quite well. SAC said to ATC, Air Training Command, you sent us a ringer. We want you to send us an average UPT student. So ATC, a couple of months later, sent an average UPT student, and SAC came back and said, thank you, send us no more. <laughs> they were going to rely on recruiting from the B-52 and the KC-135. So I kind of kept an eye on this, really, really wanted to, an FB-111. I mean, that was my dream aircraft. And I heard that they were seeking applications, so I applied. Now, you were a B-52 pilot at this time, right? At this time, I had upgraded to B-52 aircraft commander. You know, through the news came down, uh, they're taking applications for the FB-111. I got mine in there and applied. And I didn't get accepted. And I remember the wing commander, as we're finishing up an ORI certification, operational readiness inspection certification to the wing commander, he said, Bill, how's the swing wing going? And I said, well, sir, I didn't get accepted. Why? Well, they said I didn't have a master's degree and I wasn't an instructor. He said, is that required? And I said, no, it's not. He says, let me see what I can do. A couple of months later, uh, I came back in off of vacation. The ops office is on the phone. He gives me this big, big, huge smile. Well, he put the phone down and said uh, I had been selected for an FB-111 slot. So dream came true. A couple of months later, left Arkansas for New York. In fact, it was during the Winter Olympics, although we couldn't get into Lake Placid and do any of the things, but uh, it was quite a time being up there. 111, well, I can just give you the uh, thing about it. It was a joy to fly. My instructor was a former tanker pilot, and he went curses after the flight. I said, what's wrong? He says, well, I'm going to mock you proficient on the first flight in air refueling. And then he said, it took me 10 sorties to get proficient refueling, having gone from the front end of a 135 to now to the 111. It was so easy to fly. The pitch roll harmony, the forces, either axis were identical. It was just so easy to fly. Put the B-52 on a scale of 1 to 10 in the uh, flight characteristics and trying to refuel the B-52. I'm going to put it at 10. Put the FB-111 a 1. I'll throw the B-1 in there. B-1 was about a 3 or 4, depending upon how heavy it was. What was your operational wing for the FB-111A? 
Were you at Plattsburgh or at Peace? I went down to Peace. 509. 509. 509, right. And uh, got down there. Things went well. I was a simulator instructor. And what's different here was you took your check ride in the simulator, at least one of the check rides. So they only pretty much put competent people in the simulator as an instructor. It wasn't that way in the B-52, which the B-52 didn't have a simulated check ride. So I remember one flight I flew with the uh, combat evaluation group. I had to because they required two pilots, and I was one of the two pilots, one from Stand Valve and one from the simulator section. That flight was probably the only time I thought I might throw up. I was in the right seat as the instructor. We had done low level. I had done all the flight characteristics. I went to the right to pick up approach plate or something like that as the combat evaluation group pilot yanked it to the left. Ah. So the aircraft's going left. My head's going to the right. I'm sweating. And I thought I was going to throw up, up Chuck, but um, was able to keep it down. Only time ever in the flying career where it felt like it might have come up. Now, you served a tour with the 509th uh, bomb wing at Peace. Then you had a pretty interesting career after there. So can you just summarize what were some of the highlights of it after uh, the FB-111A? Well, while I was at the Peace enjoying myself, a message came down. They were looking for applicants to the B-1 test team out at Edwards Air Force Base. It would be part of the initial operational test and evaluation. So I put my name in for that. And Pease selected two and Plattsburgh selected two. And what I found out was I got the nod to go out to Edwards because of the four of us, I was the only one that had heavy bomber time, B-52 time. The B-1 was going to be a heavy bomber. So luckily I got selected and uh, went to uh, Edwards in 1983. And at that time, the B-1 was not ready for operational testing. So as a non-test pilot, I actually was allowed to fly 300 hours of developmental test, and I did most of the terrain following. One of the things, though, Ken, now that I was going out to Edwards, the proficiency aircraft at the B-1 combined test team was the F-111. So they used F-111s to chase the B-1 during test missions, and then uh, we flew the F-111 as our proficiency aircraft. So I tried to learn everything I could about the difference between the FB-111 and the F-111 from a F-111 TAC pilot on an exchange to SAC at the Pease Air Force Base. And I couldn't find much. There was not a lot of difference between the two. But when I got out there to Edwards to go fly, it flew exactly like the FB-111. Then you returned to the operational SAC world, didn't you, with the B-1? Well, after Edwards? No, I went to SAC headquarters to be the B-2 deployment manager. It was my job to uh, run the military construction down at Whiteman Air Force Base in Nobnasta, Missouri. We had a hundred, a little over a hundred buildings that we were either refurbished, stuff like that, or were actually building. Had $500 million of military construction went into Missouri. Then after that, I didn't get selected. I tried to get back into flying. I'd had enough of military construction numbers and was able to secure a Line aircraft commander job up at Grand Forks Air Force Base, uh, B-1 unit, 46 bomb squadron. Got up there, no jobs promised. Did get the ops officer job, then got the uh, squadron commander job before I went off to Air War College. That's quite a background to have flown the three strategic air command bombers. Let's get back to the FB-111A. How did it come to be? It's kind of interesting that, you know, basically one airframe could serve as both a tactical fighter or tactical interdiction aircraft and also as a strategic bomber. So 
How did the FB-111 come to be, and what was its primary mission? From what I've been able to read, the 111 was going to be the replacement for the B-58 Hustler and the B-52 C, D, and E, I think. Now, this is the FB-111. That's correct, the FB-111. Okay. Right. The F-111 was actually going to be a aircraft for both the Air Force and the Navy. In fact, the F-111B, with a stubby nose, was the naval version of the F-111. Some of the interesting things about that was they wanted a capsule aircraft because of the speeds at which the aircraft would be operating, and they also thought in a capsule ejecting would survive for a longer period of time in the water. What was interesting was that there was a bilge pump that could be attached to the navigator's stick. So when the capsule landed in the water, you put the pin in, and then the navigator would back and forth with the control stick would pump out the water from the capsule. I think as everybody knows, that was McNamara's folly where he wanted the aircraft for the Navy and for the Air Force. The F-111B had a very, very short nose because they needed room. That was the Navy version. Right. They needed the room and the carrier deck, so they couldn't have the nose as long as the original design, F-111A. Also, what did it in was the weight. It was an extremely heavy, heavy, you know, 90,000 pounds. It just wasn't going to be suitable for the carrier. And lucky for the Navy, what did they get instead? The F-14. Now, I understand, though, that in a way, the F-111B, the Navy version, parts of it survive in the FB-111A because the FB-111A got the bigger wing and the heavier-duty landing gear of the F-111B Navy version. Is that correct? The FB-111. Right. The SAC version. Yes. It was similar to the Australian model. Ah, okay. Which was covered in detail in episode 111 of the Fighter Pilot Podcast. Yeah, it was the F-111C was the... Australian version. Right. It was similar to the FB-111A. They each had a seven-foot-longer wing, three and a half feet on each side, and they also went to a heavier, gross weight. You know, the most distinctive thing about the FB-111A and the F-111 and its various tactical fighter versions is the swing wing. So why does it look the way it does? How did the airplane get the swing wing? Well, about that time, SAC was transitioning from high-level nuclear warfare. After powers got shot down in the U-2, the war plan now was to penetrate enemy territory at a very low altitude and at a very high airspeed. So the way to do that was to make for a variable wing. Pull the wing back, and you can go fast. And in fact, the 111 actually uh, was Mark II+. Plus. That wouldn't be on the deck, but it was very easy to get high Mark uh, above Mark One on the deck. That's what they wanted for a penetrating aircraft. What was interesting was the wing sweep was not automatic. The pilot had to position the wing sweep handle to the position that he wanted the wings. The F-14, the wings moved automatically based upon angle of attack and airspeed. But in the F-111 and FB, the uh, pilot had to do that. Now, in the FB-111A, you had a pilot sitting on the left and you had a bombardier navigator on the right. In SAC, was he called a bombardier navigator or a weapon system officer? Navigator. A navigator. Did he, only the pilot have a wing sweep control or did both crew members have one? I think both of them had it. 
because you'd have an instructor pilot over in the right seat. Each pilot had a stick and each pilot had a set of throttles. The wing sweep, could it be set at any angle or only at certain discrete angles? No, it could be set wherever you wanted it. And was it approved for any angle or only at certain discrete angles? No, everything was open. Every wing sweep. Now, we had some wing sweeps which we would use, of course, takeoff, cruise. We could use 33 degrees for low level, 55 degrees, 72 degrees. We had certain air wing sweeps which we pretty much always selected while we we're flying low level. 72 degrees was fully swept? Full aft. And what was uh, full forward? 16, I believe. 16 degrees. That's a big range. Yes. To look at it, I mean, it's just a beautiful picture. I've got two pictures walking into my house, one with the wings forward, one with the wings fully swept aft. Did the aircraft have some sort of system so that you couldn't get asymmetrical swing, wing sweep angles, that they had to be the same on left and right? I don't know what they had, but it was impossible to get asymmetric wings. Never happened in operations? No, I've never heard where they failed not to move. So there was never a situation where the crew had to land an airplane with the wings swept back because they couldn't get the wings forward? Not in the 111 world that I know of. In the B-1 world, yes. Yes. <laughs> we demanded a wing-stuck-aft checklist from Rockwell, the manufacturer of the B-1, and they didn't want to give it to us. Well, within the first year of B-1 operations, they got stuck at 55 degrees. <laughs> When you swept the wings, did the pitch trim of the airplane change? Yep, significantly, because it had what was called parallel trim. When you held the stick in a position for uh, a moment, the trim would move automatically to take off all the pressure. So if you were slow enough, I mean, hadn't sped up, you'd be putting in a lot of aft stick pressure and a lot of nose-up trim. Made it more difficult to fly, or was that fairly simple and easy to handle? No, it was very easy to fly. The big difference was um, between the F and the FB was SAC told General Dynamics, we want a 10,000-hour bomber. They said, well, you're going to have to limit it to three Gs. So the FB system came without a G-suit system, whereas the F-111s had the G-suit, and I think they were up to five and a half Gs. You could not do any over-the-top maneuvers in the 111. It just didn't have the uh, weight, energy, just took too much. So the fact that SAC, our flight characteristics, I think barrel roll, aileron roll, and <laughs> that was about it. The FB-111A is kind of long and thin, and uh, their fuel tanks along the fuselage. Was there uh, an issue with, uh, you could get, say, the CG too far aft if you didn't burn fuel correctly? Yes, and that was all off the pointers um, in the aircraft. In fact, we did do a flight characteristic demo where you would run out of elevator authority, and the only way to get it back would be to move the wings back to 20 degrees for landing. So you could get to the point where you would run out of trailing edge up elevator and just move the wings back, and you were able to put the trailing edge back into the range. A point out, too, a lot of people may not know was, because we didn't have ailerons, we had spoilers. But at wing sweeps aft of 60 or 63, the spoilers were now locked out. The way we turned was the horizontal stabilizers asymmetric. They were both symmetric and asymmetric. And that's how you would turn the aircraft would be asymmetric horizontal stabilizers, fully movable. In fact, no really trim tabs on the back of the elevators. Stabilizers is just, you know, 
stab itself, which moved for the trim. Now, aside from the variable geometry wings, I think one of the most distinctive aspects of the FB-111A, and for that matter, the F-111, was the escape capsule. Can you uh, tell me about that? I'll go back to probably it was a Navy pushed for that. They believed the capsule would be more survivable out in the ocean after landing. Plus, if you were to eject supersonic, their survivability was much greater with the capsule. And that's what resulted in the capsule. And in fact, the B-1 also had a capsule. So all four guys came out in the B-1. But when they went to the B model and uh, slowed it down from that higher supersonic airspeed, they went to ejection seats. Uh, B-1, A-1, A-2, A-3 had the capsule. B-1, A-4 had the four ACEs, two ejection seats. But uh, 111 was the capsule. It didn't make it much more survivable for the air crew, just so long as a tree didn't come up through the bottom, which happened one time. Was the capsule a zero, zero envelope? I don't remember if it was zero, zero for the capsule. I'd have to look that one up. I think one of the other really interesting aspects of the airplane was its terrain following system, which was very advanced for the time. Can you uh, tell me about the terrain following system and its capabilities and how it worked? Oh, 200 feet hard ride, supersonic. Uh, it would uh, go day, night, weather. It was a very, very uh, good system. It had some issues in Vietnam, was brought back home, but then went back to Vietnam and was one of the most successful fighters in Vietnam after its redeployment there. But the terrain following system had two terrain following radars. There was two separate radars down below the regular ground mapping radar and had two radar altimeters. It wasn't 100% foolproof, though. And I had three specific occasions in the FB-111 where had I not been paying attention, I would have splashed into the desert or into the ocean. If you want to hear about them, I'd be glad to tell you about them. I want to get to that when we talk about some interesting uh, situations that you have. So was the terrain following manual, or was it, in other words, the pilot was following cues, or was it automatic and tied into the autopilot? It was both. It was auto, and what you did was you flew what you would call the localizer glide slope, and you just would keep the uh, pitch so that the glide slope bar, which is what it came off of, was centered, and you just followed along with stick positions to center that horizontal bar on the attitude indicator. You could also do that with the autopilot on. You could do it with the autopilot off. My first night terrain following was during a nor'easter up in New Hampshire and Maine, going through the mountains of Maine at night, in and out of clouds, up over mountains. was Well, for me, it was a thrilling ride. That sounds awesome. What speeds were you doing that at, like 540? Not so. No, 540 was the B1. The 111, we did 420. Our high speeds were 480. Now, these were nuclear-type bombing runs. So 420 for a normal, 480 for a high speed. Wow. And at night, 200 feet, bad weather. Couldn't go down to 200 feet. You know, maybe red flag, you could get down to 200 feet. But out in our instrument routes, uh, low-level routes, probably 500 feet was uh, a minimum. But more times than not, it would be 800 feet. But that was a peacetime limitation, not a system limitation. That's correct. If it was wartime, we'd be 200 feet hard ride. Wow. 
Let's talk about the armament of the aircraft, because after all, the purpose of a bomber is to carry armament. What was the armament on the FB-111A? Two of them, specifically the short-range attack missile, SRAMS, which was a Mark V missile that was meant to blow up the defenses as you entered into enemy territory. And then B-61 nuclear bomb. That's pretty much all we carried. How many of each? I think I remember two SRAMs. Could be four SRAMs. Well, there were eight pylons on the wing. One, two, three, four on the left, five, six, seven, and eight on the right. One and two were fixed. Those pylons didn't pivot. Now, they were made so that they would be streamlined at cruise wing sweep. So for takeoff, one, two, seven, and eight were canted in 10, 15 degrees. And what we had there on one, two, seven, and eight was we had external fuel tanks. And of course, as soon as your external fuel tanks, which you would use first, were gone, you'd get rid of them. (laughs) And now you had full wing sweep capability. So all eight wing stations were plumbed for external tanks? I never saw three, four, five, and six with tanks. So it was always one, two, seven, and eight. That was it. So the uh, inboard two on each side were for weapons? Yeah, three, four, five, and six were for the SRAMs. And we usually carry two B-61s in the uh, weapons bay, side by side in the weapons bay. We had B-61s also on the wings, too. I mean, I face planted my face one time, turning quickly around into the tail fin of a B-61 and put uh, four fins (laughs) into my face. Actually, I'm trying to think of uh, our night flights we always flew is called four bags. That was so that if we got hit with a operational readiness inspection generation, we would be ahead of the game by already having those external fuel tanks loaded. And then all I had to do is just start loading weapons. So there was a chance to get ahead. So the night lines always flew with the four external tanks. Yeah, you could have fuel tanks, I think, on three, four, five, and six, too. I think they all had capable. The great advantage of the SRAM is that you could stand off from the target. What was the advantage of a B-61 where you had to fly near to the target to drop it as opposed to launching it? What kind of targets was the B-61 for? Even if I knew, I probably couldn't tell you. I got it. Well, then we certainly don't want to talk about that in detail. I've got to admit, Ken, that's, you know, we're coming up on 40 years. Let's talk about the performance of the aircraft. What was the typical ceiling of the aircraft? Uh, We refueled at uh, about 20,000 feet and then 30,000 feet. You're going long distance, low 30s. If you were lightweight, how high could you get? I'd have to go find my performance manual and tell you about that. But because of the small wing, very small wing, nothing like what the B-52. Forget the 40s, 40,000 feet. Now let's talk about speed. You had talked about Mach 2 performance. What altitudes were you typically doing at Mach 2? SAC really allowed the aircraft to go supersonic because it always had external tanks, which were limited to 0.9 mark. So there was never an opportunity. When we did go out to red flag with the FB-111s, they would take the tanks off in maybe 1.2, 1.4, but you know, running around the Nellis ranges, you know, you had timing that you had to keep. And of course, it wasn't based upon screaming along at you know, Mach 1.4 or something like that. Pretty much sub-mark, but you could get it up above mark if you had to. At low altitude, what was uh, the maximum speed? I got to go back into the books to get that. But one day when the B-1 
test commander wanted to go supersonic in the 111. We were up north of Edwards Air Force Base, and there's a low-altitude supersonic corridor. And uh, he said, Bill, I'd like to go supersonic. And I said, we will, sir. we got to get to the corridor first. So he's getting itchy. He was a colonel. I was a major. We're getting closer. And he says, Bill, I'd like to go supersonic. I said, we'll be there, sir. And so finally, I just shoved the two throttles in, and we're doing 1.4 oh at 500 feet. He was a navigator. He says, I didn't know we'd go accelerate that fast. Well, yes, sir, we can accelerate that fast. Actually, you know, SAC had the patch that said Mark 2 Plus. The max airspeed on the 111 was, with no externals, was 2.5, which I got to do one day. Wow. Let's talk about the strengths and weaknesses of the aircraft. And in particular, I'd like to um, contrast it with the B-52. So looking at the FB-111A versus the buff, what were some of the strengths and weaknesses of the FB-111? Shack, 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 shack. By shack, I mean zero feet error in the bomb placement. The FB-111s always won bomb comp all the time. Bomb comp was an annual competition among the B-52s and the FB-111s. You'd get down to uh, Boxdale Air Force, home of 8th Air Force, for the big conference and the big ceremonies and stuff like that. And I remember one time in the B-52, we were the lead crew, and we were in the last row in this huge, huge hangar auditorium. And that was indicative of where our wing was, that competition. Uh, it was the 200th anniversary of the U.S. That's right, 1976. When they put us in the very end of the hangar there, we wondered whether this was where we had placed. And indeed, we had placed at the very end because another story for another day. But I remember this uh, FB-111, uh, two captains get up there, Captain Luke Liu, and uh, his four bomb score drops were, as they said, shack, 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 shack. So his average circular error was zero, the 111 bombing system, compared to the B-52 bombing system was night and day. Contributing to that was AstroTrack, which you mentioned earlier. And if you look at the nose of the B-1, you'll see it looks like a circular plate out there. Well, that's the AstroTracker. And for the time of year, they'd load a software package commiserate with the stars that were out during that time of the year. If you had the AstroTracker tracking, and we're inputting that into the navigation computer, boy, you were spot on, just spot on. Now, the FB-111A was obviously faster than the B-52, but the B-52 had you know, a, a very large electronic warfare package and a dedicated electronic warfare officer to operate it. So in terms of penetrating enemy air defenses, how did the two stack up? The 111 electronic countermeasure systems was all automatic. We pushed four buttons at a specific time, and that was the end. The B-52, it had its limitations, which the EWs, electronic warfare officers, couldn't vary their techniques when they were doing their jamming, unlike the B-1, where the electronic warfare officer could vary techniques and was much more effective than the B-52 at some times. But the 111 for us, it was just four buttons we pushed. I think it was four buttons that, but we could get a, a missile alert or something like that and uh, make a defensive maneuver. But the jamming itself was all automatic. 
It was designed to fly fast and at treetop level, carrying 24 nuclear weapons. Today, it bristles with smart bombs and guided missiles. The B-1 bomber, called the bone by those who fly and maintain it, is the most heavily armed bomber ever built. Sleek and powerful, the bone remains a mainstay of American air power 50 years after its first flight. Hey everyone, this is Ken Katz, Call Sign Primetime, and my book, The Supersonic Bone, A Development and Operational History of the B-1 Bomber, tells the true story of this magnificent airplane. In this book, you'll read stories told to me by those who were there and see lots of great photos of the bone. Anyone with an interest in modern military aircraft will enjoy reading The Supersonic Bone, available through the usual online retailers and aviation booksellers. Pick up your copy today. Now, I assume that one advantage of the B-52 compared to the uh, FP-111 was that uh, it simply had longer range. Thousands of miles. I think we held 50,000 pounds of fuel in the 111, of course, 300,000 pounds of fuel in the B-52. But the FB-111s were not in the middle of the United States. They were on the coast, New York and New Hampshire. So they had a shorter run over to Europe and Part of that would be because of our reduced range, and, but we would hit tankers as we're going across the ocean. And I think you said that the FB-111A was a much easier handling airplane behind the tanker than the B-52 was? Oh my gosh, night and day. It was such a joy to fly. You maneuvered the aircraft, it went to where you wanted it to go, and it stayed there. We took the receptacle kind of like behind the pilots. Again, we're side by side in the 111, and it's usually the receptacle was just after the pilot's location in the aircraft. So it was just so easy. If you could have improved anything on the FB-111A, what would you have improved? We jumped into the conventional for a little bit and got a little bit of study on conventional, but we did not spend much time on the uh, FB-111 conventionally. I remember when they said, okay, we're going to be conventional. We did a little bit of work at home, but we never dropped anything anywhere. But we did go out to Red Flag and we dropped some blueies out there. That's not improving the aircraft, but increasing the capabilities of the aircraft. But still, you know, its main mission was nuclear, nuclear deterrence and then nuclear strike. To improve the aircraft itself and its capabilities, and INS would help, a new one, inertial navigation system. We had this thing where you could have a dirty break or a clean break. And that terminology was used that uh, when you said you just had a dirty break, that means your inertial navigation system just failed, and it took the coordinates of the present position and took it halfway across the world. If you had a clean break, the INS would leave your present position right where it was, and now the nav had to start using his other methods, Doppler or whatever, to continue navigating. You would always try to restart the inertial navigation system. You know, it was a new, what, you're talking 1960s you know, with that inertial navigation system. So that was a a weak area there. The radar, we were averaging eight hours mean time between failure. So if you're out on a 10-hour mission, your radar is going to go. <laughs> you just hope it goes after the bomb runs, not before the bomb runs. That was about the only thing. It wasn't made to be a fighter. Everybody said, you know, SAC put the B in FB-111 because it was a bomber. TAC had guns which is a platform that would go into the weapons bay, which they could drop on out and fire a, a gun. But SAC never had that. 
Oh, the only thing we would put into the FB 111 Whitman's Bay during the year was we'd put lobster in there and we'd take it out to Mountain Home. <laughs> there was one time where the crew was headed to Mountain Home. They went into Minot for a small malfunction and they've got a platform in the Weapons Bay with boxes of lobster. They were bringing it to this guy's friends out there at Mountain Home, only they got stuck at Minot. Well, they weren't going to get out of there, so they had to do something with the lobsters. So it went out across the base that there were fresh lobsters out at the uh, base ops for Sunday morning. And by nine o'clock, they were all gone. (laughs) There was a luggage rack, which you could put into the Bombay. The Bombay contents could either be a SRAM, a B-61, or lobsters. That's correct. I think it had, we had a fuel tank too, but I never saw it used that much. Has the FB-111A ever shown up in any movies or books or music videos or any kind of notoriety? No, not that I know of. It's got the one book called 111 Down. It is every single 111 incident and accident. We've also got this, uh, it uh, went through it. They built 500 plus F-111s. All the models, the Australian, the SAC attack, and 127 were destroyed. And up around 24% of the fleet was destroyed. Mechanical failures, uh, 25, control flight into terrain, TF not on. I mean, these guys did a magnificent job. 127 flight-related aircraft mishap, total ejections, 91. So there were some where they didn't eject. I mean, they've got the location. They've got the air crew. Just a magnificent job these two authors did to uh, produce this book called 111 Down by serial number. When we had an issue called Uncommanded Flight Maneuver, UFM, and all of a sudden, as the aircraft would be flying along, it would put in an uncommanded flight maneuver. And they didn't know what was doing that. It did cause a couple of ejections, happened at Pease Air Force Base in Portsmouth, New Hampshire, crew took off in uh, not too high an altitude, a couple of thousand feet or something like that. There was an uncommanded flight maneuver, and uh, they ejected. A capsule landed on the side of the Piscataqua River. After some of the accidents, there was a sneak circuit analysis that Boeing owned the rights to, and I think they used that for all of the space program. Basically tracked every electron movement throughout the system, there was a recommendation that they do that for the F-111, but they never did institute the sneak circuit analysis to see what was causing these uncommanded flight maneuvers. That's frightening. That was an improvement that probably should have been made. The 111 is directionally unstable. In studies, aircraft that have variable wing sweep are uh, susceptible to stability problems rather than lift limitations. And in the F-111, when you hit limit angle attack above that, you lost directional stability. Is that because the tail was shielded behind the fuselage? Yeah, I don't remember exactly, but it would uh, slice off left or right, and it was unrecoverable. So what they did put into the 111 was a stall inhibitor system. It's called SIS. As you're approaching limit angle of attack, they are increasing the stick forces. So you've got to pull harder and harder and harder. And then at some point, the system, stall inhibitor system, begins taking away the horizontal stabilizer from you to keep you from going above that limit angle of attack. I think it was 18 degrees angle of attack. At one point, it was different for flaps and slats down. 
We flew final at 14 degrees AOA. I think 18 was the limit. And I think with the gear stuff up, it was about 22 or 23 degrees true wing angle attack. The B-1 Bone had the same thing, but its stability problem was longitudinal rather than directional. I believe the 14, F-14 also, I was looking in the uh, Navy book of aerodynamics for naval aviators, and they talked in there about how the overwing fairings, you know, so that were these pieces of the aircraft which had to move up and down to accommodate the wings moving full forward uh, and then closing down as the wings moved aft. So aircraft that were designed with these overwing fairings had stability problems rather than lift limitations. Let's talk about the FB-111 in the Strategic Air Command during the Cold War. How many wings were there that were equipped with the FB-111? Two, the 509th, and I forget what the Plattsburgh wing was. Plattsburgh had two bomb squadrons and a training squadron, and Pease had two bomb squadrons. 77 aircraft. I guess the most distinctive aspects of SAC during that period, were during the Cold War, was alert and PSYOP. So can you tell me about those things? What was alert about and what was the PSYOP? Well, for us, that came from previous SAC aircraft, you know, the buff or the tanker. Alert was exactly like it was in the B-52. We went on alert on a Thursday. We picked up our weapons, our guns, you know, uh, 38s, nine millimeters later on for each crew member, and went out to the alert facility for eight o'clock. You get a briefing, weather, anything else that was going on at that time. We depart the alert facility with the offgoing crew, the oncoming crew. You do the exchange of the weapons, nuclear weapons. You look at the serial numbers and the documentation to make sure they were still the same numbers, and then you would transfer over all the classified. You'd open up the box, inventory, all the documents to make sure they were all there. And the oncoming crew would sign on for those emergency war order documents, also for the weapons. Usually after that, you'd uh, go over to the command post, emergency war order building, where you would get your command and control, CCP, command and control procedures. It was a Tape test. I say a tape test. The lieutenant colonel would have put the questions on a audio tape, and you'd sit there and take the test, and it was 100% or bust. There's all questions about, you know, would you start engines? Would you take off? Would you employ weapons? Would you go past your H-hour control line? Different scenarios and different crews had different sortie routing and stuff like that, so it could actually be not everybody had the same answer. And I think people have heard about the cookies. These are the tickets that uh, have the codes, and they're uh, plastic sealed, never to be opened until you know you went off to war. So we had our training cookies, and one crew might break the plastic, and you'd hear it, and you go, "Well, geez, I'm not supposed to be breaking ours. I wonder if we've done something wrong here." <laughs> but it was just because the missions were just a little bit different, where you were going, what you were doing, and maybe some of the weapons were a little bit different. So these cookies contain the codes that you authorized you to attack? To uh, arm the weapons and deploy the weapons. You know the football that the uh, military guy carries for the president? Right. Called the football. All right. Well, there are all the codes and stuff like that. And uh, we got the other portion of the codes and everything to enable the release of nuclear weapons. You talked about something called an H-hour control line. What was that? You know, it's just a line out over the ocean that you wouldn't have a certain timing that you'd have to meet. That's about all I can say about that. 
this was all part of a big picture called PSYOP or the Single Integrated Operations Plan. I understand that you really can't talk about that in detail, but in the big picture, what was that? Well, that was the integration of bombers, submarines, and ICBMs. That all had to be integrated into a single integrated operations plan. So they wouldn't go running through each other's nuclear explosions? That'd be a good idea. (laughs) Although we did have our flash blindness curtains, we would pull up the flash blindness curtains, front windows and side windows, and then in the cockpit, we'd put up this metal panel and had a portal hole so that we could look through this flash blindness glass. So in case a nuke went off, it wouldn't flash blind us. But the single integrated operations plan at headquarters SAC, because I worked the B-2 deployment, I never got to go downstairs to see how all of those things were put together. So I've not got much knowledge on how that was all put together. But you can imagine, we had 25 bomber bases when I was first into Strategic Air Command. So some of them had two bomb squadrons, some had singles. My first one, Blybel, had a single bomb squadron. But, you know, if you take how many bombers on alert and all those going over the ice cap or over the North Atlantic, they had to integrate. Plus, you had the F-111s in uh, Europe. The tactical F-111s. Yeah, well, they were also nuclear, too. They sat alert over there. One of the advantages we had in SAC was we had in a regulation called Combat Crew Rest and Recovery, C-squared. Every day of alert, we got a half day off. The TAC guys did not have that. (laughs) So they go on alert for three days and go right back to work again. And I believe also in Korea, the F-4s, I had a friend who was a navigator on the F-4s, and I believe they had a nuclear commitment also. Did the PSYOP also include the tankers and the air fueling rendezvous points? Yeah, well, that had to be coordinated, you know, where to put the refuelings based upon takeoff locations and fuel flow for a different B-52 versus a 111. Was the plan constantly being adjusted? Because let's say, for example, Minot Air Force Base is covered by a blizzard, and there are certain targets that are allocated to the B-52s at Minot. So if they can't fly, would the plan be adjusted? There was never a case where you did not fly. Interesting. You know, the plows were out there 24-7. You were always going to go. SAC was notorious for operational readiness inspections, ORIs, and if a unit didn't do well, usually it meant that the leadership got fired. So tell me about the ORI. Well, the ORI, operational readiness inspection, was an inspection of the entire base, whether the entire base could carry out its wartime commitments. As you can imagine, all the people were called in. Take it all the way down to the cooks at the chow hall that are now doing midnight chows and extended chow, stuff like that. So as soon as the inspector general team landed, it was go. And we had a generation plant. It was every aircraft that had it to be generated to its wartime mission. And there was a sequence, a timing sequence, because you'd put the fuel on, and then you'd put the weapons on, and you keep building up all the way along until every aircraft on the base had now been fueled, weapons loaded, inspected by the air crew, and now sitting alert, the entire base. and. You had a timing progression, and uh, if you didn't meet that timing progression to be cocked on alert, you lost points for that specific sortie. It meant you couldn't have made your timing in case the war was declared. Uh, When I was uh, 
instructor pilot there at Pease, Dave and myself, we had 24 FB-111s. We had 23 at Pease. One was in depot, so that one wasn't going to count. Dave and I were put against the 23rd FB-111. So we were last in line to generate. So we got called in, and uh, I think we spent a number of hours at DOX, that's the emergency war planning, studying, just waiting for a telephone call that said, come out and inspect your aircraft and cock it on alert. By cocking it on alert meant all the switches were prepositioned and you were just ready to fire off cartridges and crank the engines and go. So we waited and we waited and we waited. We were up all night. Our aircraft, the 23rd aircraft, was in the hangar. It was called the Canbird or the Hangar Queen, basically because of the parts shortage in the early 80s because of defense budget cuts. We would use uh, one aircraft and we would cannibalize parts off of it to keep the rest of the fleet going. And it became the Hangar Queen is what it was called. Well, Dave and I have the Hangar Queen. And now what the maintenance had to do is they had to put it back together again. So they would get some parts from Plattsburgh Air Force Base and Two maintenance vans would hit the interstate and uh, meet in uh, White River Junction, Vermont. They'd exchange the parts in the van and head back to home and continue trying to generate the aircraft. As I said, though, our aircraft did not make its generation timing, so we were sent home. And then the next day was when we would go ahead and fly the mission. During that time, they got the number 23. They got some parts in and they were able to bring it up to flyable status, fully mission-capable is what they called it, and we would now be in the lineup for the takeoffs. I mean, everybody was working, 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 working to make these things go. The FAA controllers, air traffic controllers, had gone on strike prior to this time, so SAC was conducting all of its operational readiness inspection missions on Saturday nights. We had what was called ALTRAVs, altitude reservations, with the uh, FAA to send 23 aircraft, 24 aircraft, 30 B-52s through the airspace. Saturday nights were the least active commercial aviation. So we moved to Saturday nights, you know, 6 o'clock Saturday night to 6 o'clock Sunday morning. We'd fly these. What they would do is they would develop a new low-level route with a new bombing area. So let's say at Bliva, we always bombed at Richmond, Kentucky, or Statesboro, Georgia. Well, you do that over and over and over again. The radar navigator knows it like the back of his hand. So what they need to come up with is some new territory that they had not seen on radar before, which makes it similar to what you're going to do in wartime going over to Europe, Asia. So we had this ORI inspection going and uh, aircraft were just taking off on time. Two 111s would take off together every 30 minutes. We had a beautiful ORI launch going, every aircraft taking off on time. Then it came up number 23. Well, it wasn't a 24, so we were by ourselves. Maintenance had got the aircraft up, fully mission-capable status. I had checked out one of the write-ups. They suspected a dragging brake on the last flight before it went into can status in the hangar. And I asked them about that, and they said everything was, was just fine. They couldn't duplicate a thing. So we head out, got cranked up, and started moving, took a little bit extra power. I thought maybe a draggy brake was there again and stopped up uh, halfway to the runway. And the supervisor were flying. They called out all the maintenance folks, and underneath the aircraft they went and looked at all the tires and braking aspects of the main landing gear and 
found nothing. So off we went. As we went down, I'm still thinking, do I have a dragging brake? Do I not have a dragging brake? There's a slight incline on the P's ramp down to the hammerhead, and it seemed to go okay. But now I was faced with this story. They've had 22 out of 22 aircraft launch on time. This is a spectacular performance. And anybody that had a blue vehicle with orange lights up on top pulled up beside me, and it was like this final salute, not a final salute, but it was like a salute for an exceptional performance. (laughs) And I'm going, oh, do I ruin this exceptional performance and not take this aircraft, or do I go? Dave and I talked about it, and we said, well, you know, maintenance has looked at it twice now, and it's not theirs. You know, it just must be whatever. So we took off on time, a perfect operational readiness inspection launch. Um, even though we lost points because we couldn't generate it on time, the fact that we were able to later get it off got all its points for the actual takeoff time. And uh, about two or three minutes after takeoff, Dave said, command post said to crack the speed brake. Now, I can't listen to command post frequency during the takeoff. I'm not permitted to do that because my mind is supposed to be on the takeoff and fly the aircraft. So when he said crack the speed brake, in the 111, the main landing gear door is also the speed brake. And what you have to remember is the F-111 only has two gear struts. It has a nose gear strut and one main landing gear strut. And both tires are on that main landing gear strut. So when they said crack the speed brake, I said to Dave, I said, oh, gosh, we must have had a driving brake. Somebody saw something. So the important thing there was I was glued now to the main caution panel there's a light that comes on that says wheel well hot. So you can imagine if you've got a hot wheel in the wheel well, and if that tire blows, it takes out electrical wiring, it takes out environmental system ducting, it takes out hydraulic tubing. The last thing you want to do is have a wheel tire blow up in the wheel well. So the whole thing there is crack the speed brake, I'm going to cool it off, and if the wheel well hot light comes on, you drop the gear immediately. So that the gear now out of the wheel well, you can then uh, lessen the damage potential for some type of explosion in there and damaging all the components. So we kept this speed brake down. You know, it's just cracked out 10, 15 degrees and just did that. And we kept our eye on that. Nothing happened. So we closed the speed brake and off we went. So you can imagine it's nighttime. Every once in a while, cruising along on autopilot. Our first refueling was in Oklahoma, over Oklahoma. You know, it's an hour and a half, two hours to get down to there. And every once in a while, it popped into my head, you know, what's going to happen on landing when I get back to Pease? All right, let's hit the tanker. Let's pay attention to that. And then uh, our next activity was to go low level in Arizona. So we put our mind on that. And as I'm going down, we're doing an auto-blind letdown with the F-111 terrain following system. And normally about 1,800 feet above the ground, you begin hearing the oral tones that tells you it's beginning to see terrain, and it's going to start following that terrain and will level you off at 1,000 feet HGL. Well, I'm not getting the indications that it's going to level me off. The terrain following system, if we've got 1,000 feet terrain clearance set, at 830 feet, if we go through that altitude, we get a fail-safe fly-up. So it's called the 83% fly-up. So we're going down, we're going down. Dave and I are going, oh, we don't think this is going to level us off here. You know, we're 450 knots going down. So I was ready for it. I pulled it out at 900 feet above the ground, and the system's not working. We tried the other radar altimeter. 
no change there. We tried the other terrain following radar. And I had Dave on his radar clear us of terrain, and we went down to 800 feet. As I say, at 830 feet, we should get a 2.4G fail-safe flyout. We didn't get the 2.4G, 0.3G fail-safe flyout. The entire terrain following system is just not working. <laughs> so we climbed to what's called an IFR altitude, and we proceeded at the IFR altitude through our low-level route. The bombing and navigation system had a number of uh, failures. So instead of being able to do this synchronous-synchronous, whereas a lot of it's automatic, they've had to do alternate-alternate methods to get the bombs out. So I went through one bombing area. We went up over the Continental Divide. We had to accelerate to 540 knots to make sure we had 2.4G flyout capability. Well, we didn't have TF anymore, but we still had to maintain the airspeeds for timing. Then we went up and did another bombing run up in Montana at the IFR altitude. Came out of there and went up to uh, 20,000 feet, 22,000 feet. And over North Dakota, met a tanker, got more gas so we could go back home. If we hadn't gotten gas from that tanker, we would have deployed into Minot, North Dakota, or Grand Forks, uh, North Dakota, or maybe Kinslow or K.I. Sawyer up there in Michigan. And we went headed home. It's now coming up close to uh, sunrise, Sunday morning. Dave and I are still talking about this. Now, because the F-111 was supposed to be a naval carrier aircraft, it has a tail hook. So we're talking back and forth. Do you think we should deploy the tail hook in case we have a bad break? We could take an approach end cable engagement, or we could take a departure end cable engagement. Well, the departure end was kind of out. wouldn't go down that far down the runway. So we decided nothing really firm about whether we've got a problem or don't have a problem. So I told the Peace Approach Control to put the tanker in before us. And they said, two, three, you got a problem? I said, no. Sun's coming up on the horizon. This is the uh, vectored in for uh, precision approach. And we touch down and all of a sudden the right wing goes down a little bit. And I went, damn, we had a dragging break. Next thing I see is flames reflecting off the external fuel tank. It wasn't a big problem. Nothing was going to happen. There was nothing in that external fuel tank. Now I'm working the left brake, and I got the thing stopped on centerline, which was most amazing to me that we were right on centerline, but yet the right tire, a third of the tire is gone, and about a third of the metal rim is also gone. Now, one of the things was the fire trucks were out in 60 seconds, and the fire was out in 180 seconds. But I didn't shut the engines down until they got there because the fuel left over in the fuel line dumps right behind the wheel. (laughs) So I didn't want to dump fuel, residual fuel, into what was already a fire. So, um, yeah, we had had a dragging brake. And what I found out later was somebody saw smoke as we went down the runway on the initial takeoff. So that's why they told us to uh, crack the speed brake. They never told us they saw smoke. So maybe that was best. And still to this day, in the chapter I've written, and I wondered whether I should have or should have not have taken off, well, the amount of uh, sadness about this perfect launch being aborted because Moran in 23 didn't go, what I figured was if I hadn't gone, okay, they would have taken this back into maintenance. They would have CND'd it again, and I'll tell you why. And then on Monday or Tuesday morning, another crew would have gone out and flown it, and there wouldn't have been a whole bunch of colonels running around out there on the flight line and wouldn't have told them that they had 
smoke. And then the gear could have been up and maybe something could have happened in the wheel or something like that. So it, it had a chance to be much, much, much worse than, than what it was. What it really caused it was there was a spring in the brake system, which was broken. It allowed 90 PSI to be applied to the brake continuously. That's what caused the dragging, caused the heat, caused the fusion. As I said, it was never called to be inspected during the entire life of the aircraft. Well, that soon changed. That went into the maintenance manuals that that spring would be checked. Because the IG was on base, uh, we got sent over to the hospital and, you know, six test tubes of blood later, you know, make sure we hadn't been drinking whiskey <laughs> through the 12-hour ORI flight. It was a minor incident, about $20,000 worth of damage. So it's called a Class C, so it's not an accident. And they rewarded me with a flight on middle of the week. They gave the uh, SAC Inspector General, uh, this Brigadier General, a DV flight in the uh, F-111, and he has been a B-52 pilot, never flown the F-111, and they made me the instructor pilot. As they said, Bill, we wanted to show <laughs> SAC headquarters that we had uh, faith in you. <laughs> I won't go into that flight, but that was a one hell of a flight. Took off 200 and a half, never saw the ground until we came back through 200 and a half. Wow. That was sunrise surprise. But the pressure, lots of pressure. That was the Cold War. Oh, the other thing, too, was when you land, you go through debriefing, then everybody goes to the post-flight party. That was at the alert facility, which is at the southeast end of Pease Air Force Base. I am landing on runway 34 at the south end, and I'll tell you what. They said when that tire went, it blew so loud, they heard it in the alert facility, and then the next thing, all the colonel's radios were going off. Two threes on fire, two threes on fire, two threes on fire. We never got to the post-ORI party. <laughs> we broke up that post-ORI party with a huge bang. But all the bombing, it was a great ORI. Scores and everything, except for two, three, not being able to generate on time. Everything was very, very good. Testing, you know, the air crew testing, the 100%, you know, pass or fail. You know, everything was just tremendous. Did you have a personal call sign? No. Well, was that not a SAC thing? Oh, no, that's not okay. a SAC thing. That didn't come in until SAC went away. And when the bombers went to um, Air Combat Command, then, yeah, everybody started getting personal call signs. But, no, they didn't do that. That was not a Curtis LeMay approved <laughs> deviation from uh, regulation. Any closing thoughts on the FB-111A and the Strategic Air Command? Well, it did its job. That's about the way I can sum it up. Its job was to stand on nuclear alert to provide the deterrence. And um, it did that for all through the Cold War. You know, back from the time from LeMay, you know, he drove the command to this exceptionalism of discipline. And you've heard it before, the LeMay discipline. And that's the way it was in SAC. It was a discipline that you were expected to follow because that discipline was required so that every time that the Strategic Air Command Inspector General team came into the base, you could perform your function uh, the way you were supposed to do it. And through many B-52 ORIs, FD-111 ORIs, B-1 ORIs, and some we, most of them we passed. There'd be a couple where we throw some bad bombs, and we did the job. We did the job that we're supposed to do, and the 111 helped us to do it. Colonel Moran, thank you very much. You're welcome, Ken. 
You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BVR Productions. Got a question for the show? Send an email to questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877-MACH-101. That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to check out our website at fighterpilotpodcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube. For exclusive Fighter Pilot Podcast content, check out our Patreon page. Please like, follow, and subscribe to the show. And don't forget to share us with your network. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the host and his guest and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense or its components or its contractors. Thanks to our title sponsor, National University. National University is committed to supporting veterans, active duty personnel, and military families through flexible online courses and master's and doctoral programs in high-demand fields, providing excellent career advancement opportunity. National University is a yellow ribbon school that proudly accepts the post-9-11 GI Bill and goes the extra mile by offering additional assistance to cover expenses that may not be covered by the GI Bill. To learn more, visit nu.edu forward slash veteran.